fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. And we pray now that as we listen to your word, that you would cause our ears to hear and our hearts to respond, both to the warnings and the hope that are found herein. Help us to see and understand, we pray, by your Holy Spirit's power at work within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, In last week's passage, we saw Satan being bound during the millennium, and we saw in verse 3 that he would be released for a short time. And that is what is being described now in the passage that is before us. We see his release, we see what he begins to do when he is released, and then we see what becomes of him. And then after that comes the final judgment. So in this passage, we come to the end of our history. We come to the beginning of our eternity. And as strange as it may sound to say we come to the beginning of eternity, because eternity has no beginning and no end, that's our experience. Because in this life, we are in this temporary sphere. We're in this temporary place. And so at the end is this movement from the temporary to the permanent. For believers, it will be a move from fracture to wholeness, from the temporal to the heavenly, from suffering to bliss. For unbelievers, it will also be permanent, but it will be a move from fracture to more brokenness, from suffering to unending suffering, and from the temporal to the hellish. This passage speaks of everyone's destiny, Everyone who has ever lived. And as you can see, there are just two outcomes. My hope at this point, we're getting near the end. We have two more Sundays after this, which we're going to finish the book of Revelation, Lord willing, in that time. My hope is that the pieces are beginning to fit together a little bit better. Now, by that, I don't mean that any of us understands everything in the book of Revelation. I've always been wary of people who present themselves as understanding everything in the book of Revelation. It's made me more nervous than it has given me any comfort. There's a lot here that's mysterious. There's a lot here that we have to stretch. And even when we do stretch and get these little glimpses of understanding, we realize that behind that there's so much more that we have yet to understand. What I mean is that I hope that all of us have the bigger picture grasped a little bit a little bit better so that we are filled with 
a little bit more hope. Uh, I felt like when we started this, that's where we were, that's what we needed. I think it is still what we need, that our hope would be increased, given all that's happening in our world in the past few years recently, that we would see Christ exalted and returning, coming back to repair all that we see broken and wrecked by the fall. Last week, we touched on the millennial views, and we worked really hard to get through. It was a lot of information. Uh, there, for many of you, that may be kind of the only category that you have for Revelation. I know that was true for me for many years, that the whole amill, pre-mill, post-mill, and kind of what category you fit into. But hopefully you've seen from the book of Revelation, there's so much more to the end times than simply being in one of those categories. Uh, if you want to know more on that, there are some, uh, there's, there's one particular book that presents the four views that's on the book table. I failed to mention that last week. Uh, but many of you have either been raised or have been impacted because we live uh, in America. The most dominant view has been the dispensational premillennial view. And I mentioned it last week. I mentioned that that was the only view of the four uh, that would be out of accord with our own system of doctrine. That doesn't mean that the people who hold that view are unbelievers. They're, they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, and this is how I was raised. Uh, I grew up being taught this. And um, I remember going through the movement from that view uh, into where I have since landed. And I haven't said where I've landed, but hopefully if you've been listening, you figured it out. If you haven't, talked to me. Part of that process, and it was a long, it wasn't a quick process, it was a long process, but part of that process uh, involved serving in the church where I grew up as associate pastor for three years. And it was during that time that I was preaching, that I was studying, that I was reading, that I began to really wrestle with. I was becoming more confused and frustrated with that system, that hermeneutic, and I began to see more clarity and consistency in the uh, the, 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 that reformed view of redemp- the redemptive historical approach that covenant theology provides for us. And I began to be drawn to that. But again, it wasn't a quick, quick process. There was one seemingly insignificant event that happened right after Micah was born uh, where Leslie and I went to take him to his first pediatrician's appointment. And when we went there, um, we, uh, this, this was the doctor who had been my doctor when I was a kid, and I didn't expect him to, um, I've had a technical difficulty and I'm trying to solve it, but I can't multitask here. Um, hopefully it'll come back up here in a minute. If not, it'll be an interesting morning. Uh, but, um, uh, I remember going to, uh, to see him and he had been my doctor as a kid. And when we walked in, he recognized me right away. Now, I don't know if it's because he's just a really smart guy or if he read the chart and kind of put the pieces together or if a helpful nurse connected the dots. But we began talking, Dr. Dale Knutson. And I remembered in our conversation, he asked me what I was doing, told him where I was, he knew the church. And uh, I remembered that he was at the PCA church nearby because the pastor of that church and I were in a pastor's prayer group together that met monthly. And he and I had been having some interesting conversations, the pastor and I. And so Dale was talking to us and he's checking Micah out and so forth. And uh, he's talking to me and and he's wanting to... um, He's wanting to understand kind of where I am and what I'm wrestling with. 
And so I began to explain some of the things, and but I ended up going to eschatology. And I said something to the effect of, you know, I don't know where I'm going to land, if I'm pre-mill, if I'm post-mill, or if I'm all-mill. And he, he looked at me and he said, you know what I am? He said, I'm a pan-millennialist. I think it's all going to pan out in the end. <laughs> and, and it's a joke, right? It, he was being funny, okay? He's a ruling elder in the PCA. That, that isn't really where he lands. But, but the joke got its message across. And the message is that God is sovereign over all these things. And that was such a comfort. It was refreshing to me to hear that and to be able to laugh with him about it. The story went on because that was his first career as a pediatrician for, I don't know, how a long time. But he went on with his wife to become uh, missionaries uh, to Cambodia with MTW. And uh, I was working in the home office when they came through assessment. And so I would run into them through all this process and later took a team over to Cambodia when they were on the field, ran into them there. Every time I see Dale Knutson, he tells that story. And, but he adds something to it. He says, I'm the reason Seth is in the PCA now. He goes back to that seemingly insignificant event. Well, you may feel like I did when I first heard that joke, unsure of all the details, unsure of how it all fits together, but confident that Christ will return, that he will make all things new, that he will redeem all that has been lost The two scenes in this passage are the two events that surround the second coming of Christ. Satan is to be released for a short time, as verse 3 told us, just before Christ returns. And his intention is to deceive the nations, to rally the troops, to oppose the people of God. But he will be met with utter defeat when Christ returns. You remember how Christ is pictured when he returns. He's pictured on a white horse. It is a sign of victory, and he comes in conquering. He comes as the conqueror. Following that monumental defeat is the great white throne judgment, where every person who has ever lived will stand before their maker. I remember going to an apologetics conference. It was on apologetics and evangelism in the late 90s at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and hearing for the first time a gospel presentation called Two Ways to Live. You may have heard of it. It's a... It's a simple, straightforward gospel presentation, and it it makes it clear that there really are just two ways to live. It is the wide road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life. The gospel really is that straightforward. You are either for Jesus or you're not, and if you're not, then you are against him. Jesus taught clearly, no one comes to the Father but through me. And such a teaching as that is not, it's not only unpopular in our day, it is considered reprehensible. It is considered vile. And don't miss the irony in it. Because the person who says to you that it's intolerant is themselves being intolerant of your view. So don't get tripped up by that. Young people, when you hear people say that, don't don't get tripped up by that. The truth is intolerant. We can't help that. Because if the truth wasn't intolerant, it wouldn't be truth. Truth is opposed to error. Truth is simply reality. What is? 
Now, there are certainly different things that we perceive and recognize, but it doesn't change the truth. Our perception doesn't change what is actually true. Our opinion doesn't change what is actually true. We see this especially in the area of mathematics and science, but it's in other realms as well. We want our airline pilots to know truth. We want our bridge builders to know truth because gravity is very unforgiving. But you don't have to just go to math and science. You can go to language. If I set up here and I don't do it because I have no idea what would come out of my mouth, but if I uttered a bunch of gibberish, made-up words, you would all look at me and you would know well, first you'd know I was joking, but you would, you would look at me and you would know it was for a point, but it'd say I went on. After a while, what would you do? You would leave because it makes no sense. Words mean something. And if I stand up and say things that don't mean anything to anyone, then meaning is lost and there is, there, there, there's no understanding, there's no grasp of it. What happens when we, as we live in a society that says truth is your own, make up your own truth, make up your own destiny, even make up your own identity, is that because the truth is intolerant of error, when we, when we go down these roads, they lead really in only one way, and that is lunacy. It doesn't work. When we reject the truth, we run into error, and the consequences of error. You see, truth simply is. And when Jesus came and he made the incredible claim, I am the truth, he was speaking of who he is in both his transcendence and his eminence. He who has always been came in the flesh and brought the truth to earth where we could see and touch and hear and understand. He brought the truth to us. And now as we see in this passage, as we come to the end, we see that there really are only two ways to live. A broad road and a narrow road, a large gate and a small gate. And each of these paths end very differently. Last week I mentioned we saw that Satan was bound during the millennium so that he could not deceive the nations. That's the reason that is given. Satan is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations. And the intention of that binding and the intention of that prevention of deceiving the nations is so that Christ would build his church. We know that the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. Why? Because God will carry out his purposes. And part of that was to bind Satan for a little while, but at the end of the millennium, he is to be released. This, in verse 7, is where that release happens. And notice, what is the first thing Satan does in verse 8? He deceives the nations. (laughs) The exact reason why he was bound, as soon as he's set free, he goes and does exactly what he wanted to do. And the purpose at this point in deceiving them, understand this, this is what Satan wants. He wants to destroy God's people. What did he do? He went out to deceive the nations to gather them for battle. That was his intention. That was his, that was his plan. He wanted to gather them for battle to destroy them. 
And hopefully, you're beginning to see how all of this fits together with everything we've seen throughout Revelation. Now, this has been building all along, and not only has it been building, but there is this increasing intensity that will come at the end, a final battle known as Armageddon. Now, as I've said, this may not be a battle in the way that we perceive it. You have to be okay with that. Because Christians in 100 AD could not have imagined what battle would have looked like in 2021. Christians in 1500 couldn't have imagined. And if the Lord tarries for another 500 years, we can't imagine. This is spiritual language, okay? It is used symbolically to describe true things. There will be a battle. But the particulars, we can't die on a hill over these particulars. We don't know what they are. So don't necessarily see this as swords and spears. There is going to be some kind of gathering by Satan of the people who are opposed to Christ to try and defeat. There's some kind of persecution. But what the particulars are, we're not told all those details. Now, we've seen this battle described in chapter 16, verse 16, chapter 19, verse 19, and here in chapter 20. And what's of interest is in all of these cases, the article V is there in the original Greek. This is not three separate battles. These are all describing the same battle. We can even go back all the way to chapter 6, like we did last week. And we looked at the sixth seal. And you remember how I've been describing, it's a parallel structure. The seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. It's not linear. And hopefully the sixth seal is one of the most clear examples. That's why I'm going to use that again even today to help us see that what is being described there fits so squarely into what's being described here that it's clear that was being described then. It is one single final battle that is to take place. Again, don't think swords and spears necessarily. This is an attack against Christ's people. Uh, by those who oppose Jesus himself. There are two ways to live. So people are going to be on one side or the other of this. Now, all of the characteristics that we've seen of the end are coming. They're gelling together, hopefully, for us in our minds now as we see this final battle presented. The kings of the earth, which we've seen talked about in all of the parallel structures, here they're represented by the names of Gog and Magog. This is a reference back to Ezekiel. Uh, We looked at Ezekiel a few weeks ago, chapters 38 and 39. This is John's continuing to reference these same two chapters here. The battle that's spoken of there in Ezekiel 38 and 39, we don't have time to read those two chapters, but listen to just some of the descriptions from Ezekiel 38 and 39. The face of the earth shall quake at my presence, and the mountains shall be thrown down, and the cliffs shall fall, and every wall shall tumble to the ground. Ezekiel 38.20, I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. Ezekiel 38.22, I will give you two birds of prey of every sort and to beasts of the field to be devoured. Ezekiel 39.4, you see in these descriptions, hopefully you're hearing the familiarity of what we've seen described in the book of Revelation about this final battle. Now some have taught that Magog represents Moscow. 
and that Russia is this, this is an attack of Russia on Israel. This comes out of that dispensational uh, hermeneutic that I referred to earlier. And, but if you look, the, the only connection that's here is because the two sound similar, but I think that's even a stretch, Magog, Moscow, and, you know. Um, that's it. That's kind of the whole basis of it. But, you know, if Christ doesn't come for 500 more years, will Moscow be? I don't, I don't know. It's, this is not speaking of a nation state. In fact, it begins to break down if we look. In Ezekiel, it was the name of Magog who comes from the north, and that's the tie-in. Moscow is north of Israel. But here we see that they come from the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west. And then uh, the language that's used is, is ethnos, which is translated, I didn't count, but just scanned how this word is translated in the New Testament, and I would say a third to a half of the times it's translated Gentiles. This word is the word that's used to describe the nations, the unbelieving nations, who are opposed to Christ. This is not a singular nation or state. This is not one country attacking attacking another, but this is a portrayal of those who are not Christ's opposing the people who belong to him. And so at the end, when this attack occurs, whatever it looks like, whatever this persecution looks like, whatever the battle looks like, it will appear as if the church has met its end. It will appear hopeless to believers, especially those who have not studied Scripture and understood that this is what it's going to look like at the end. But it will especially appear hopeless to the world. They will believe that they've won. Satan will be, have been released. He will have gathered the nations. He will, do, he will do what he has wanted to do all along without encumbrance. They will come like the sand of the sea, an innumerable uh, number, uh, an innumerable number, a, um, an innumerable mass of people, uh, the sand of the sea, to surround the bride of Christ, and it will appear hopeless. It says they marched up over the broad plain. In the ESV, it's worded that way. Uh, Kistemacher, who's a New Testament scholar, says it should really be translated, they came up over the breadth of the earth. The picture that is being described here is that they came from all over the earth. And again, this goes back to the four corners. It goes back to the language of ethnos used to describe the nations. Whether this describes a traditional battle in the way that we understand it or some other kind of persecution against the church of Christ, we don't know those particulars. There are some particulars that we do see here that we can know. First, it is coordinated by Satan. Verse 8 states that he gathered them up. And secondly, it is worldwide. Verse 8 speaks of the nations, speaks of the four corners of the earth, and then in verse 9, the breadth of the whole earth. So this is a worldwide persecution of God's people like we have never seen just before Christ returns. What is the outcome of the battle? Well, we don't have a lot of details here, but we've seen this battle described elsewhere. So we can go back to those other passages and put some of the pieces together. But I want to look specifically just at what we're told here. It says that they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And then we, we hear how it ends. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Now, this is consistent with what we've seen in chapter 6 and chapter 16 and chapter 19. And as we saw, this is the same battle described elsewhere. The false prophet, uh, the beast, who is the Antichrist, they were judged. They were thrown into the lake of fire. And now we see the same thing happen to Satan. Now, the way that it's written, some take this who understand it linearly, say that that millennium is in between. 
But when we go back and we look at the way it's described, we see that this is actually happening at the same time. There won't be a thousand years between the false prophet and the, and the Antichrist being judged and then Satan being judged. This is all happening at the end. John is moving, the time, or moving his description up. In other words, in the end, at this battle, when this happens, everyone who is opposed to Christ will be judged. Now, the phrase, the camp of the saints and the beloved city, this is describing the people of God. It's another twofold description, similar to what we saw in chapter 11 with the two witnesses, a twofold description of the people of God. The camp of the saints, what does it make you think of? Uh, Old Testament people of God coming out of the wilderness, coming through the wilderness, coming out of, of uh, through the Exodus, coming into the promised land. They were encamped, uh, and they moved as a... Um, kind of a, a mobile people. That's why the tabernacle was designed to, in the way that it was. It was mobile. But Philippians 3.20 tells us that our citizenship is not on earth but in heaven. And Peter writes in his first epistle, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So the people of God are strangers and aliens in this world who await their permanent dwelling where their citizenship truly lies. So there's this camp component, but then there's also the city component. And the city here is a contrast to the city of Babylon, uh, the, the, the one that belongs to the city that belongs to Satan. Jesus uses the language of the city in his message to the church at Philadelphia in chapter 3. Jesus spoke to the church saying, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. One scholar writes, There are only two cities or kingdoms in the apocalypse, the city of Satan where the beast and the harlot are central and the city of God where God and the Lamb are central. So against God's people comes this attack. And then when Christ returns, while this attack, which looks like it's going to succeed, when Christ returns, it ends abruptly. It is sudden and it is final, with fire coming down and consuming all who have been deceived by Satan. Again, symbolic language. Will fire actually come down and consume those? Or is this describing just the absolute certainty with which Christ judges? The, the particulars, I'm not going to argue about the particulars. The certainty of the outcome, I will argue about. And that is when Christ returns, he will certainly conquer. He will certainly be victorious. And with that conquering, then Satan, who has been released for the short time to deceive the nations and to persecute God's people, then Satan will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire along with the beast and the false prophet. Now some may wonder, Satan is not a physical being, he's a spiritual being, so how does fire play into the torment? Well again, symbolic language, don't know what all the particulars are, but the torment is described here. So this isn't about just spiritual versus physical. We see that there is true torment in verse 10. And the torment is described going on and on, day and night, forever and ever. This is sobering to think about. Grant Osborne writes, Those who are offended by such teaching have too low a realization of the terrible nature of sin and the natural response that divine holiness must have toward it. The wages of sin is death. There is a consequence to our sin. And God is holy and He must Judge it. 
And so here, not only do we see that judging, but we see a little glimmer of hope in the midst of it. Because with Satan and his beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, and all those who are his being thrown into the lake of fire, so are death and Hades thrown into the lake of fire as well. They are thrown into this judgment. And then after this will come the great white throne judgment, where all are judged before their creator according to their deeds. Note that at the appearing of the throne, that the sky and the earth and the sky fled away. This is verse 11. And there was no place for them. What does that remind us of? Well, this is where I want to take us back to chapter 6, verse 14. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The strong argument for, again, that parallel structure that what we saw happening in six seal, six trumpet, six bowl fits with, as, as, as what precedes the return of Christ or happening at the time of the return of Christ. What's interesting is just after that verse, in verse 15 of chapter 6, we see there was no place for them, the people of the earth and the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? This is describing the end. This fits exactly, chapter 6 fits exactly with what we're seeing here in chapter 20. In verse 12, every human being who has ever lived is pictured standing before the throne. How does this occur? Well, this is the general resurrection. This is, you know, I I said the last week or the week before, um, everyone or, you know, unbelievers will rise once but die twice. And believers will rise twice but die once. And it's a quote, I forget the, uh, I should have written that down, the, the person who said it. Go back to the recording a couple weeks ago. Um, but, but that's what this is speaking of here, is that this is the general resurrection. Everyone will be raised to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And we see it being described in verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So what does it mean here to be judged according to what we've done? Because this is a sobering message. Does this mean that all of us will have... I remember, uh, I don't remember if it was taught or if it was just suggested, but the idea that, you know, what would you do if a videotape was played of all of your whole life and your whole sins? And, and I don't remember, again, if it was taught or if I just assumed this, but I remember being afraid, even as a Christian, even as a believer, that someday everything I ever did would be judged, that I would be held account. And I, I didn't really grasp how Christ's death and atonement for my sins dealt with that. So... Let's look and see how this is handled. It's, the answer to the question is found in the books here that are open. The books, uh, again, symbolic pictures. Will there be physical books that are open that we see with our eyes? I, I don't know. Uh, God doesn't need a book. His memory's perfect. So is this a symbolic language for the perfect memory of God? Possibly, is there going to actually be a book? There may be. The book is not what's important. What's in the book is what's important. Now, the book of deeds is that record of all human, everyone who's ever lived, everything that they've done. Nothing's overlooked, nothing's omitted. However, there's another book that trumps the first book, and that is the book of life. Look in verse 12. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
This is the book that we saw, we were first introduced to in chapter 17, verse 8, a book that was recorded all the names of the redeemed, a book that was written before the foundations of the world. There's your election. Daniel 12.1 also speaks of the same, uh, God's redemption. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Listen to what Dennis Johnson writes. Written in this book are not deeds, but names. You could preach a whole sermon on that right there. Think about that. Written in this book are not deeds, but names. When this book appeared earlier in Revelation, we were told these names were inscribed from the foundation of the world and that the book belongs to the Lamb that was slain. It is the registry of those from every nation whom he purchased for God with his blood, and it is the one book in all the universe that spells the difference between eternal life and unending death. While people are justly judged according to their deeds, only those inscribed in the Lamb's book of life will escape the lake of fire. They have been judged already according to Jesus' deeds. His obedience as the faithful witness and his sacrifice as the lamb. And consequently, their vindication is sure. They have been judged already according to Jesus' deeds. God doesn't overlook sin. That's why it was such a costly price that Christ paid on the cross for your sin and my sin. But for those who belong to Christ by faith, They have been judged already according to Jesus' deeds. His obedience as the faithful witness. His sacrifice as the Lamb. This is the sure hope that we have. This is the anchor of our soul, as the writer of Hebrews speaks of, that Jesus has gone before us, behind the curtain. What's behind the curtain in in, in the tabernacle, in the temple? What was behind the curtain? The Ark of the Covenant. What happened once a year when the, great high, when the, when the high priest went in uh, to, to the most holy place or the holy of holies? He sprinkled the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. Why? It was pointing forward to a day when one would come. This one who has gone as a forerunner before us behind the veil, which was then torn in two, so there's no more need for sacrificial system. His blood has been sprinkled so that our sins have been judged by the shedding of his blood. Because of his death and resurrection, you and I have been saved from the wrath to come. When we stand before the throne and the book of life that was written before the world was made is opened, we will be vindicated because of what Christ has accomplished. Now, if you have not placed your faith in Christ, this is a warning. This is a message, a message with instruction. You will be held accountable for your deeds. I mentioned the wages of sin is death. There is a consequence to our sin. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There's accountability for what we have done in our lives. Yet those who have fallen on the mercy of Christ by trusting in Him, their sins have already been paid for. Jesus has dealt with those sins. So this is a call to believe and to trust in Him, the Lamb who was slain. The Heidelberg Catechism says, God wills that His justice be satisfied. Therefore, must we make full satisfaction to the same, either by ourselves or by another. There are two ways to live. Our sin will either be dealt with by ourselves or by another. Live for yourself 
And you will pay the price yourself in judgment. Live in faith for Christ and accept his merciful atonement for your sins. And you will be forgiven. And so if you have trusted in Jesus, know that. Know that your sins are forgiven. That is my prayer for you today. That you will know in Christ that your sins are forgiven. Not in part, but in whole. Hear this clearly. The faith that is the gift of God to you is the means through which He has reconciled you unto Him so that your sins are not held against you. You may hear that this book was written before the foundations of the world and you may wonder, am I in the book? What if, I'm, what if, what if my name's not there? Your faith is the evidence. As frail as it may be, This gift of God, your faith, demonstrates that you belong to Him. Your confession of Jesus is the evidence that He has made you His own. And because of that, your sins are forgiven. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 43, 25. I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And finally, Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.